0: I, spending time with these programs, have just seen the way that they that they help people, that they save people. And I think the discussion taking place in the Capitol has just demonstrated this massive disconnect between the politicians representing the people of West Virginia and the most vulnerable communities that they represent. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them.
1: Hello, Narcotica listeners. Zach Siegel here. I'm one of the show's co-hosts. We've got a bit of a different episode in store for you today, a one-on-one conversation with me and a wonderful journalist, and I think you'll really enjoy this one. Before we get to that, though, I wanted to go over a couple housekeeping items. As always, this show is independent and ad-free, which is made possible thanks to our Patreon contributors. If that's you, thank you. It really helps us. If you dig what we do and you want to chip in, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash narcotica. Even a couple bucks goes a long way. And don't worry if you're not able to donate, because this show will always be free for everyone, no matter what. You can also find us on Twitter at NarcoCast, and you can find our show on all the major platforms. But please like and subscribe to us on iTunes, and if you're so inclined, leave us a review. Hopefully a nice one. It helps others find the show. But still, probably the best marketing is word of mouth. Tell your friends about us. So I think that about does it. As I mentioned a second ago, today's episode is a one-on-one conversation about a topic that's hugely important a political battle over harm reduction happening right now across the state of West Virginia. For those of you who don't know, West Virginia is in dire straits. The mountain state has the highest overdose mortality rate in the nation. If that's not bad enough, there are multiple HIV and hepatitis C outbreaks spreading due to a lack of access to sterile syringes. That's what this show will be about. From the perspective of Lauren Peace, a local investigative journalist in Charleston, West Virginia, who has been chronicling the dirty tricks and unctuous political backlash against people who use drugs and harm reduction workers trying to help them. She works for the nonprofit investigative news outlet called Mountain State Spotlight. We'll throw links to her work, which has just been incredible. All right, last thing before we roll the interview, I promise. I know you hate podcasts that have a long, rambling introduction, but what I'm about to say is important and very relevant to the conversation you're about to listen to. There's been a few developments regarding the situation in West Virginia since this interview was recorded. First, I reported in Filter that the Biden administration is potentially picking Dr. Rahul Gupta to be the director of the Office of National Drug Control Policy, otherwise known as ONDCP. When Dr. Gupta was the state's top health official, the mayor of Charleston shut down a local syringe program run out of the local health department. It was then requested that Gupta audit that program and his office produced a highly critical and highly problematic report that is now being used and cited to further the backlash against harm reduction in Charleston. Then, after that, the Washington Post reported that none other than Senator Joe Manchin is behind Gupta's rise as frontrunner to take the job at ONDCP. The other news in West Virginia, and this is super important, is that there has been some movement in the state legislature around Senate Bill 334, a bill that is ostensibly about establishing a licensing application for syringe programs across the state, when really it's about restricting syringe programs across the state. There's some amendments to this legislation. Not only will syringe access programs require licensing, they will need a letter of approval from a local county sheriff. And in case you don't know, local county sheriffs aren't big fans of harm reduction. Another amendment to this legislation is that participants trying to access syringes will need to show a state ID. Restrictions like these create Barriers to accessing vital health services that save lives and making these barriers even higher at a time when overdose deaths, HIV and hepatitis C are rising is truly mind blowing. I'm not one for hyperbole here, but what's going on in West Virginia is a crime against humanity. So I'm going to drop links to All the stuff I just said, so you can click around, so you can be informed and get to know who is doing what in this country. Okay, I'll shut up now. Here is Lauren Peace of Mountain State Spotlight. You can follow her on Twitter at Lauren M. Peace. So, I'm very excited to introduce you to Lauren Peace. Lauren, where are you coming in from?
0: I am in Charleston, West Virginia, um, and I'm a public health reporter here for Mountain State Spotlight, which is a, a brand new nonprofit newsroom that actually launched during the pandemic. So when I say brand new, I mean brand new.
1: Wow, that's actually super exciting. All I've heard are, you know, news outlets laying everybody off and everything closing. So it's nice to see that there's actually uh, some New stuff being created in these dark times.
0: Yeah, no, it, it is exciting. And I'm, I'm from West Virginia originally. I think the vast majority of our small seven person newsroom, um, is either from West Virginia or has been in the state for a really long time. So, um, it's nice to, to sort of, to do this in, in a place that we all care deeply about and that really, really needs investigative journalism.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, don't know a ton about West Virginia, but whenever I kind of dive into state politics there, I just hear kind of these, yeah, this historic kind of shadow over the state where powerful interests and extractive industries kind of pulled the strings and, you know, just kind of Left the people with, with very little resources to, to survive in this state. And we don't, you know, that's maybe that's sort of the backdrop to the conversation we'll, we'll be having about harm reduction and syringe services in West Virginia. But as someone from there, I guess maybe we can start with just, yeah, what's, what's it feel like there right now? And are the kind of stories about despair and poverty is that like what you see every day, or is there much more to the state than, than just that?
0: Gosh. So I'll start by saying we're in the middle of a legislative session. Um, the session is 60 days. So um, I think we're coming up to the, the halfway point um, pretty soon. And uh, this session in particular has, has been, you know, it's been really discouraging. Um, I think we we've seen a lot of suffering uh, across our states, um, uh, largely because of inequity, um, in poverty, we have really poor health outcomes, um, pandemic aside. And now in the midst of, of COVID, um, we're seeing even more economic despair, even more sort of hardship. Um, I always say that like what I really love about West Virginia, and I think the, the beauty in West Virginia is like the interactions, um, between its people sort of this really neighborly feel um, that despite uh, <laughs> sort of all of the forces powerful forces extractive forces pushing against the state and, and for all of the problems that we have there's um, there's this real camaraderie um, among its people and in, in pandemic times at the very least that from my perspective has has been chipped away at um, and so we found ourselves in the middle of this Legislative session. Um, and while we have a lot of hunger, we have a lot of chronic health, you know, chronic health um, conditions. We have um, obviously, you know, substantial opioid use and, and one of I think the highest mortality rate from from substance use in in the country. We're seeing legislation that that is, isn't doing the people any favors. And so what does it feel like right now? It feels, it feels hard. It's, it's um, yeah, it's discouraging.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, I feel like a lot of us, you know, I'm also a writer focused on public health and harm reduction and it's sort of, Every day, rolling the boulder up the hill, and at night, watching it fall back down, a bit of a Sisyphean life, kind of, especially with drug use and harm reduction, the debates and political conflicts at the local level are almost these recurring It's like on a broken record. It's like in the eighties we were fighting and I wasn't, you know, alive. You know, I was born in 1989, but in the eighties they were having these fights about syringe distribution during the HIV epidemic. And here we are, you know, 30, 40 years later, having the same exact fights, the same debates at the local level about syringe distribution during a overdose crisis. And as you mentioned in West Virginia, which has the highest mortality rate out of any state for overdose deaths. And then also during a HIV outbreak, which is occurring in the middle of a pandemic. So like these are three kind of colliding health crises right at where you work and report and live. And so yeah, I, I just want to kind of reiterate at the top here that like what you're doing is very difficult and discouraging and disheartening and but at the same time i think as you mentioned like the people that you meet doing this work and the people who care about the health of their communities uh, there's a lot of really special passionate people there who do very brave and courageous stuff so the dark ugly stuff i find is complemented by the the people and who are just beautiful and doing incredibly difficult work
0: no, definitely. It's uh, yeah. I mean, there 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 are definitely two sides to it, right? Sort of the perseverance in the face of nonsensical and and just stigma. This <laughs> stigma yeah, that, exactly. that gets in the way of of uh, what is a common sense public health decision.
1: And so I have about six or seven tabs open right now from spotlight.org and they're your stories about the kind of these local battles over syringe service programs and yeah I think I have six tabs open of uh of your stories covering this over the past what is it like six months like I I think maybe we can start with like where things are at now and maybe work backward a little bit so just recently a Bill was introduced that would, um, I mean, maybe you can have the the language of the of the bill more succinctly put than me. But it sounds like if this bill were to pass, syringe service programs and harm reduction programs generally in West Virginia, or is it just in where is it just in Charleston? But they would be severely boxed in, like they would not be functional. Is that right?
0: Yeah, that's right. And it it is across West Virginia. So the bill, Senate Bill 334, was introduced earlier this month, actually a week, I think a week, it might have been two after CDC officials sort of came to town virtually, it was over Zoom, but came to town to talk to officials in our capital city at the local level um, about the rise in HIV that um, that we've had over the past two years in connection with injection drug use. And so, um, you know, on one hand, you have the head of HIV prevention for the CDC in the capital city saying, we need to increase syringe access. Like, this is a crisis, and without urgent action, um, it's going to get worse. And a week later, a state senator in the same city and, and you know, in the Capitol building introduces um, a bill that would effectively make following CDC best practices around harm reduction and around syringe services illegal. It would outlaw it in the state. Now, it's not a total ban on syringe distribution, which is what we saw in a bill introduced last year that actually failed. Um, but that same senator has come back this year and introduced legislation that um, seeks to do the same thing, which is limit these programs in a state that that really needs them.
1: And so we can get into the weeds a little bit here maybe about like what that limiting looks like or how it would play out practically. Would it mean like a strict one-to-one type of exchange or like what are some of the limitations that would be placed on these programs? And then if you could sort of talk about like why it's important that these programs actually have the Liberty to operate that the way the people running it kind of believe that that they need.
0: Um, so I'll start by saying that there's a, a substitute to the bill, a committee substitute um, that was just passed along uh, to the Senate, and it's on its its first reading today on March 5th. And I I haven't had the time yet to go through that. Um, it it just popped up on the agenda this morning. So the bill that's currently being considered uh is a little bit different than the one that I'm just I'm going to describe to you now um but not so much so that it makes a substantial difference in uh the effect that this legislation would have on the efficacy of these programs and so Senate Bill 334 in its original form uh it did it did a few things it like you said put you know in place a, a strict one to one exchange um, meaning if a person doesn't bring back a used needle, they, they won't get a clean one. It limited funding to programs doing syringe distribution. So that in, in itself was, was like a major hit. A lot of the programs that we have across the state right now, their primary source of funding comes through the state's Department of Health and Human Resources. And this bill, Basically said, if you are engaging in syringe distribution practices of any form, even strict one-to-one, you're ineligible for state funding. The bill required a letter of support from the county sheriff. It required unanimous support from the county commission, so on and so forth. Um, it required participants to have a, a valid state ID, um, and we're, we're you know talking about a population that. That varies in 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 sort of personal circumstance, right? Like I I think I wrote about this in one of my articles. But at a syringe distribution event in Charleston, there were parents working full time jobs and coaching soccer who who quietly struggle with substance use disorders. Um, but there was also a a significant you know houseless population um, who who don't have valid West Virginia IDs. So it would automatically you know create a barrier for for folks. To, to access the program, what else? I mean, you can tell I'm I'm out of breath, rattling through all of the yeah. obstacles yeah. because it's just ongoing. Now, I think the the committee substitute, and like I said, I haven't read through it um, all the way yet. That's on my list of things to do this morning. I think it it loosens a bit on on that initial bill. It's not as sort of. It's not as definitive in in what it seeks to do. There's language adjustments, like instead of saying a strict one-to-one exchange, it says um, a one-to-one exchange being the goal, right? So there are these like small edits to language, um, which lawmakers right now are sort of using to say, "Well, look, we're compromising. (laughs) Like we're 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 you know we're we're meeting in the middle, Um, but." From my understanding of the bill, and certainly from the CDC's understanding of best practices for harm reduction programs, that it, it still um, would place a serious cap on on these programs. And and if you know, it, I'm I'm going on here, but if it's okay, I would say something really interesting happened during the last committee meeting, the Health and Human Resources Committee meeting in uh, the Senate, which was was making amendments to this bill. And one of the senators said. You know, there's all of this research on, uh, what these programs look like when there aren't restrictions on them. And we haven't really seen much research on what happens, um, when we, you know, when we do put these restrictions on, on these programs, which is one fundamentally false, but <laughs> let's say that, that that's true. Um, so he said maybe this legislation could actually benefit these programs. We could see, you know better outcomes under the guidelines that we're putting forth. Um we just don't know because we haven't seen it yet.
1: But your whole th- your whole response to that has been like, but we do know. Like we have seen this, right?
0: Yeah, and not only have we seen it nationally, we've seen it right here in our backyards in West Virginia. There's there's a you know, if we focus on the capital city, Charleston, um where we're currently facing an HIV outbreak linked to injection drug use because a, a needs-based needle exchange was shut down uh, three years ago, there actually is another program that's that's been operating this whole time. And that program largely follows the guidelines put forth by Senate Bill 334. It's by far the strictest program in the state. And when we look at data around uh, utilization of that program. How many syringes are they distributing? How many participants do they have compared to others around the state that are operating, in, you know, more in line with best practices? Um, we we see that this program isn't really being used, and simultaneously, we see that even though that program is there, um, HIV is flourishing, Hep C is flourishing. We're having these outbreaks, and so you know, nobody nobody in the Senate committee sort of raised their hand and said. Well, actually we, we do have research on this and we have examples in West Virginia right now, which was disappointing, but, um, yeah. I digress.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it must be. Yeah. It feels like, you know, we're all banging our head against the wall here because something very similar happened in, in Indiana, I believe back in, in 2016, right? Where there was an outbreak of HIV that was linked to injection drug use. And this is back in the days of Opana, which is uh, oxymorphone tablets. And these pills just really flooded uh, like the a, a sort of southeast corner of Indiana, I believe, um, Scott County, Indiana and, and Austin, Indiana. And while this was happening, the then governor at the time, Mike Pence, was, was sort of just dithering and like twiddling his thumbs and being like, I'm uncomfortable about syringe programs and they're banned in this state for a reason. And usually the, that rhetoric involves, you know, totally misguided notions about syringe services, like that they enable drug use or that they prolong drug use or, or whatever. And um so it's like, you're right, we've seen this happen in West Virginia, we've seen it happen in Indiana, and we've seen it happen all over, that when people do not have access to sterile syringes and kind of the whole suite of wraparound care for overdose prevention and the prevention of blood-borne diseases like HIV and Hep C, that – that these outbreaks happen and they're just so preventable. It just makes kind of like my brain explode every time this happens.
0: Yeah. And I think, I think too, I, I, um, one of my more recent stories, we went to, to Morgantown, which is two and a half hours North of, of our capital city. And, uh, and has one of the oldest and also, um, the, the most successful syringe service programs in the state. And we did sort of a, the solutions-oriented look at, you know, okay, well, these programs exist in communities, um, and when there's community support, like we, we don't run into the problems that we're running into. That that that, um, not that we're running into, but that that local politicians um, who are uncomfortable with the idea of a syringe exchange are sort of preaching, are the, the doom and gloom, the community demise that uh, that that they believe will will take place when syringe service programs are introduced. It's not, it's not happening, um, two and a half hours north where one of these programs is already, you know, operating and has been for the last five years. So, uh, we went up there and, and we did this piece looking at that program and trying to understand what was the difference between it and Charleston. Was, was the difference really just community support or, or were there differences in sort of the fundamental way that the program was set up and, and, and that these services were, were being offered? But one of the things that, that the director of the program, uh, Laura Jones, said to me at the time was, syringes are really uncomfortable. And that's okay. Like, so nobody wants to see syringe litter around their town. If you're unfamiliar um, and sort of had it, haven't had the exposure to to working with people um, who inject drugs, then it, it can be really jarring and really intimidating and um, and uncomfortable. And that's that's okay. But the fear-based response. Um, to that discomfort isn't okay um, because when we step back from this, you know, immediate emotional reaction, and we work to better understand what these programs offer um, to to folks and, and the role that they play in our communities that that are already <laughs> suffering from from so many just diseases of despair, from from substance use disorders, from um, from a lack of of mental health services, then you understand that that. The benefits far outweigh the, the, you know, slight discomfort that, that we have when we talk about injection drug use and syringes. And I just, I thought that that was such a good way to put it because I don't think that the message that is, is being pushed, um, syringes don't have to be comfortable. Like the conversation around Mm -hmm. this subject doesn't have to be comfortable. And I think that we need to be better about, um, Acknowledging that and, and telling people in our communities it's okay if this is scary to you. But <laughs> you know, um, here from from you know once we establish that jump off point, that that you know common understanding of it's okay if this is an intimidating, scary subject, then we can open doors to having conversations about the science and about the good that these programs do. And and I think what I've seen in West Virginia at least is there there hasn't really been enough of an effort to to see those conversations take place. And I think it's because from the the, the side of the people providing these services, they're always playing defense. Like they're under attack mm-hmm. yeah. and they're always sort of in in survival mode. Um and I think if, you know, the conversation could slow down, that there could be space created to to have these conversations and to sort of help educate people. Um
1: Yeah, I, I I totally agree with that point and think it's important to kind of dwell on it for a minute because you're right, like you even like me, you know, I don't have skin in the game. Like I'm not a community organizer. I'm I don't have uh like credentials and, and health, like I, I but even I get so defensive around this topic. And I think part of the reason is because there's so much bad faith. There, there's so much just people lobbying uh, really gross, stigmatizing rhetoric at this topic all the time that even those who, like you say, like are uh, just lay people who don't know the subject, but know that like when they see a syringe on the ground, that that's like not a pleasant sight, right? That like just the, the knee jerk reaction to a, uh, like a used syringe on the ground. Like yeah, it's a literally a biohazard, right? Like, like these things should not be on the ground and no one wants to see that. And at the same time, I think it's, it's important to acknowledge that and, um, and yeah, not necessarily react uh, as though everyone is coming from a place of, of, of bad faith and is kind of digging their heels in in the stigma. And I feel like there was actually a, a very recent kind of development in this conversation, and I saw it published uh, on March 1st in the West Virginia Gazette-Mail, and the, the headline is Victor Yurecki. Uh, Charleston faith leaders back sore. And soar and S O A R is sort of the, 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 the community run syringe service, um, in, in Charleston, right? And the Victor Yurecki was sort of wrote an op-ed from the perspective of faith leaders. And it was a really beautiful, uh, kind of, uh, theological tribute to, harm reduction. And there was just like, you know, the, the the third paragraph is one line and it just says harm reduction programs are our last defense against inhumanity. And I thought that's like, yeah, that's a really kind of beautiful and, and, and human way of putting it where it's like, of course, we don't want to live in a society where we need <laughs> uh, supervised consumption sites and we need syringe programs and we need all this stuff. It'd be great if everyone just like had a home and, and had the, the resources they need, but our society is, uh, very broken and these programs step into that brokenness and try to reduce the harm and make things less difficult for people, right? And so I feel like there's a, a much needed kind of humanizing discussion around this issue that can, um, I guess, Talk about it and defend the practice of harm reduction without going to the knee jerk defenses and and like I think like Twitter probably like has poisoned my brain on this where I'm just like a snarky asshole to anyone who is like questioning this stuff where it's just like just like google c d c plus syringe services and just like read something for like a minute, please before you say that this like enables drug use or something and there that wasn't really a question but <laughs> we're just kind of talking now.
0: <laughs> I feel it though. I mean, I feel it. And I can say like, like Zach, I come, I'm coming to this subject with far less experience than, than you have. And when I started reporting on this, I, I started in May. Oh gosh. It was like May, May or June, maybe July. Um, But it was, it was last summer. I, I started, um, I I started reporting on this we didn't publish the first piece until December so there were months in between where I was just an observer acquainting myself with the subject and I came in not knowing anything about about syringe access programs I you know I know very little about injection drug use I grew up in West Virginia and if you've grown up in in West Virginia then you you automatically know people who are who are impacted um by it I think someone said if you know if you haven't Lost someone to a substance use disorder, then you're not from West Virginia, which is the the sad illustrative reality of the crisis that we're in. But I really I didn't know much about um, about syringe access programs, and I I knew nothing about harm reduction. And so I I came into this reporting very much through the lens of like an observer and a and a learner first and foremost. I didn't know what my story was going to be and I I understood that the subject was um <laughs> controversial and uh, required a lot of nuance and um fortunately at Mountain State Spotlight like I was given the time to um to just familiarize and to be there and to observe and to watch and to interact with people and learn before I put pen to paper. And I think that that was a real gift in my understanding of harm reduction and hopefully my reader's understanding of harm reduction. I don't think that we see enough reporting that is person centric on this subject matter. And I think that that's because it's, it's, it's a really difficult topic to, to, to get access to. Um, people are scared to, Go on record. We have to be careful to to protect our sources when they're opening up about you know vulnerable and vulnerable ways about about serious medical conditions that they might face you know retribution for it at work um, later. But I I think like when I started writing about it and when I started just really focusing on like the individual stories of people and their experiences and what this this program meant to them, not just in in you know a way of getting access to supplies, but in in a way that it helped establish connection, that it was like this source of love and um, uh, compassion and and a place for companionship that so many people who relied on this program were otherwise going without. I started to, to, I think, understand the role that these programs play in communities is so much better um, than i ever would have before like i you know i could read i read the scientific articles but until i was there reporting and seeing it in person and and witnessing these you know moments of connection between between people who who were struggling like i also didn't really understand the extent of the importance of these programs and and all that's to say like I wish that there were more ways to open that experience to the community at large because when we enter these conversations about syringe access a lot of that fear comes from just a a complete sense of misunderstanding where You know, they just hear syringe services and they hear that needles are being distributed and they don't understand the wraparound services and they don't understand sort of the community that is that is formed um, for people who otherwise maybe lack it um, through these programs. And so. Yeah, I I don't know where I'm going with that with this. I guess that that's something I've really tried to do in my reporting and I hope that others will will continue to try and do in theirs. Because when I hear people, you know, not politicians who have agendas, but but just community members who um who have good intentions and who really want the best for for their community and for all of the people who live in it, there's just this to- total disconnect in. The image that they have in these of these programs in their mind, and then what actually plays out on a Wednesday afternoon in a parking lot during street outreach. And so I think, okay. like as journalists, we really, I'm trying, <laughs> I'm trying to help connect those dots.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's also why I, I wanted to, to talk to you is because your work on this is definitely a departure from the norm. There, there there's very few. Stories about substance use and community based programs that, that do harm reduction that, 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 yeah, that, that feature people in all of their kind of rich context. And, and I find that, you know, the, and you're right. Like it is hard to get access to this. And I'm very grateful that like behind every story I write on this topic that someone somewhere along the line like vouched for me like that there was some someone in the harm reduction community who was like oh no like you can talk to this guy like he's not going to fuck you over (laughs) and that's something that um that kind of trust is is really hard to to develop and it's not something that is like to be expected it's like and i think that you had this window where you didn't have to file a story and you were able to kind of watch and be around harm reduction for, it sounded like weeks or months before actually putting pen to paper. Like you said, it's like, yeah, having that ability and actually um being able to develop that trust over time is, is what makes these stories possible. And I think, um, yeah, there's so much parts of media and, and journalism that, um that I think make your job and my job even harder because it makes people, if someone approaches, if, if a journalist approaches someone who uses drugs and is like, hey, will you talk to me? It's like, no, <laughs> like I've seen what you guys do to people like me. Like, I don't want to be on the, be in the news about this. Like I'll lose my job. I'll lose custody of my children like i'll get targeted or or harassed by the local law enforcement like there's a lot of consequences and risks to uh going on the record um doing this kind of work especially in in maybe a place like west virginia where correct me if i'm wrong but the police did investigate uh the syringe program where you live right
0: yeah yeah so that's um that was sort of the at the center of, of my first story, I, I started going out with this group. Um, well, I don't know what's helpful. Do you want me to give you the background on that, that first piece? Um, um
1: yeah, yeah. Like what, wh- yeah, whatever details you feel comfortable talking about with the police investigating, uh, that program, um, feel free to do it. And yeah.
0: So in, in Charleston and West Virginia's capital city, we had, um, uh, A needs-based syringe access program run through the city county health department um for i think about two and a half years um and in 2018 in the midst of a contentious uh mayor's race um the the program really took spotlight and um and just took a lot of a lot of hits um and and was ultimately shut down um so that was that was in I think March of, of 2018 that program closed. Fast forward, you know, 2 years and uh it's it's a scenario that experts forewarned <laughs> about. Um, people don't have access to safe injection supplies. Um there isn't a steady flow of naloxone or narcan through the community. So the overdose rate is still incredibly high. Um, and Hepsi and HIV are uh are beginning to spread. And so this nonprofit grassroots group, solutions-oriented addiction response SOAR um, that you had mentioned um from the op-ed, uh come together um and they've already been doing work in the community around substance use um for for about a year and a half, maybe maybe more, um, primarily focused around like Narcan distribution uh, and making sure that local businesses um, in the area uh, carried carried Narcan. Um, so that was, I mean, it was really sort of a it was like a campaign to get everyone comfortable and familiar with overdose reversal medications and, uh, see that they were distributed widely around the community. Well, through doing that work, um, the nonprofit recognized, you know, an additional need, um, for sterile syringes and began quietly, um, distributing them, uh, around, around the city. it grew rather quickly. Um, so originally they were doing mobile distribution to just select individuals who they would run into who, who needed access to, to sterile syringes. Um, and fast forward uh, a few weeks and they realized OK, the need is so large that we we can't, you know, we can't do this in a mobile form anymore. What we're going to do is we're going to set up in a parking lot once every two weeks, um, and we are going to just have a, a, a couple of tables, you know, picnic-style tables um, with snacks and and water and just basic goods. Um, we're going to distribute naloxone, and at the same time, we're going to quietly continue to, to hand out bags of 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 sterile needles. That grew really quickly. I first went out with them in May. Um and as word spread, I think, you know, the first time I went out with them in May, it was up two picnic tables, sort of propped up plastic tables, portable tables, um, and a line of maybe fifty people. Um by the time uh October rolled around. It was a full blown like parking lot carnival. <laughs> there were yeah. tables with yeah. uh with snacks and they they had gotten doctors and local medical students to come by. There was wound care being offered. There was um
1: word got around. Word right?
0: got around and people were there. And I think I think the nonprofit didn't expect Um, The need to be as great as it was. Um, So I think that there was some surprise on their end. But um, yeah, as word traveled, the more and more people who needed these services came out um, and it turned into like a really, a really pretty big um, biweekly event. So I had been out with them this whole time. Come October, uh, a local news station got word that they were distributing and did, uh, this whole expose on them. Um,
1: yeah, was that a Sinclair station, by the way?
0: That is a great question. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know.
1: Yeah, it's all right. For, for listeners not familiar, Sinclair is a, uh, kind of, I guess, a group of local broadcast stations that, yeah, uh, kind of, I don't know, like to stir up like culture war kind of stuff. Like it's, it's not the best <laughs> local broadcast news. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I'll just leave it at that.
0: <laughs> and we saw that, I think, on the reporting around this issue. Um, so they brought it to Charleston police and said, you need to investigate. And Charleston police, uh, responded and opened an investigation into this nonprofit on the grounds that they may have potentially violated a city ordinance around syringe distribution. Now that's like a long story that we don't really need to get into, but basically city law was written, um, Poorly, I think, with the intention of uh, of limiting syringe distribution, but in the in the form that the law was presented in at the time that this group was distributing, um, there were there were loopholes.
1: Gotta love inept legislators. It's great.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and so so yeah, so that's it was right after that investigation uh, that uh, the, the police opened an investigation that we published our first story um, on on the exchange and it's just it's you know there have been stories upon stories um, that have followed, but the the police investigation concluded in January with an 86 page report and no findings of wrongdoing and uh and so the group in the interim has has returned to distributing but but what this did was open um open discussion and debate around syringe distribution in Charleston and sort of re refueled this fire this this political fire in 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 regards to a public health issue that um that yeah. maybe politicians <clears throat> shouldn't be making. And so that was our focus for a long time. And then the legislative session started. And now, you know, my reporting has sort of, I have to look beyond Charleston. I have to say, okay, what does this mean for the whole state?
1: And is there like a kind of core group of legislators that introduce these bills and kind of keep the issue alive? Um, and if it's kind of the same, I don't know if they're senators or the, the same lawmakers who, who keep doing this, you talked a little bit already about like, oh, you know, we think that these, that these laws will help these programs or that this is the compromise. Like, like what, what's their rhetoric when they're or if they're ever confronted with like, Hey guys, like here's the hep C and HIV rates. Like these need to go way down and this program will do it. Just like how do they, like, what kind of mental gymnastics is going on in their rhetoric? Or if you have any kind of examples of what they say.
0: I mean, just a total disregard for fact is what, what I would boil it down to, um, which is what makes, uh, makes this subject, um, tricky and frustrating. You know, I w- I'll say, I'll start by saying it's a bipartisan issue. Um, there are democratic lawmakers who are, uh, entirely opposed to syringe services programs and there are Republican lawmakers who support them and vice versa. Um, so, it you know, we don't see any consistency sort of along party lines.
1: It's a trans political issue. How, how great.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, it's uh, this is I was having this conversation with my editor the other day and I was like, what? Where do I go from here as a reporter? What, what else do I write on this? Because I, myself and a few other really wonderful reporters in, in the area have, have just been hammering away at this and there's, there's, you know I, I i think sometimes people who don't understand journalism think uh that uh, we're bringing our opinions into this and it's just an issue where it's, it's there's the, it, it, you know this is how you report on something when evidence falls so heavily in one direction and there isn't actually right. a compelling argument for the opposite and so I i maybe i should have you know started this conversation by saying that, that my reporting is is driven by the, the decades of scientific evidence that we have and what experts are saying and, you know, in-person observation. It's just so it's 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 really difficult when after months of reporting on this subject and really sort of bulletproofing uh, that, like, none of it matters when political debate begins. It's not referenced. It's not. You know, there's just none of it, none of it seems to matter. And so I don't know where we go from here.
1: It's, uh, yeah, really hard. I I think I confront this all the time, too, is like the limitations of our job, you know, like, you and maybe this is like a more of like a cultural problem than like a kind of, that like our work doesn't matter kind of problem. I feel like, you know, like in movies, like there's always some like crazy conspiracy, something like really terrible is happening. And the kind of big plot is like, only if people knew this was happening, then it would all be fixed. And the climax is like someone, you know, goes on TV and broadcasts the truth. And then that fixes everything, right? Like, like there's this idea that, yeah, just simply uh, that the facts and the truth will, will win the day. And it's just not how our culture works. It's not how people think. Um, a lot of these issues, especially this one, is driven by emotions and ideology and politics and really messy, tangled up stuff. And um, I've yeah really learned that just, you know, quoting the science and saying, re- repeating the statistics and quoting the experts, like... It really isn't enough. Like, like people have a story that they're telling themselves, and like, it, it it's really really hard to dislodge those stories and dislodge kind of false narratives from people's minds. Um, you know, it, it's it's really uh, yeah, like it's it's just kind of a sad fact of, of doing this, and it gets back to like the the kind of Sisyphus thing I was saying at the top of the show where it's just like, I I kind of know that like this, this like 3000 word story I just wrote about a very effective treatment for cocaine and meth addiction, uh, like that this story will not mean that tomorrow there's going to be uh, a whole kind of uh, infrastructure set up and ready to implement this treatment. You know, it's just like uh, just something that, I don't know. I like. I, I just keep doing it. I've been doing this for for years now. Just kind of knowing that, like, uh, you know, maybe someone somewhere read this and learned something, and you know, that's like that's a win. <laughs> it's it's like it's. I guess it's managing my expectations. I guess
0: that's yeah. That's a really good point. And I've definitely i've i've seen seen bits of that happening in West Virginia through reporting. But I think you know we syringes uh, the the primary point of syringe distribution the the reason that we you know the first goal is to reduce uh, and prevent the spread of HIV and hepatitis C but being there and in, in, in you know joining groups who are who are Running these programs on on evenings that they do, it's so clear that it's about so much more than that, and um, it's so 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 clear that these are such important tools to 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 help connect people with services, vulnerable people who are struggling and suffering with services that they wouldn't otherwise have access to, and um, you know, I think what breaks my heart is there's already such a limit um on those services in in west virginia and um you know the 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 overdose epidemic isn't going away (laughs) that we are leading the nation in uh overdose mortality rates is 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 that's not going away i I um t- heck just over the pandemic alone I so I was out of West Virginia for about 7 years and I just came home but um in the 7 or 8 months that I've been home uh two two kids who I grew up with who I I went you know to elementary middle school and high school with um died of of drug overdoses um two people you know and that's like one example of the impact um and it's it's a, a a drop of water in an ocean. And I yeah. spending time with these programs have just seen the way that they that they that they help people, that they save people. Um and I think the discussion taking place in the Capitol has just demonstrated this massive disconnect between uh the politicians representing the people of West Virginia and the most vulnerable communities that they represent. It's, it's, it's made evident that, that, that there is no connection there, that, that, that these people, um, don't matter as, is harsh, but that these people don't matter to them. Um, and so, yeah, so it's really, it's, it's hard. <laughs> it's discouraging and it's, and it's hard. And, um, You know, I'm gonna keep reporting on this, and I know colleagues and friends at other newspapers are gonna keep reporting on this, and, and as a public, as a, as a public health reporter too, uh, there are so few you know health is really complicated like our our health infrastructure is so totally complex and complicated that when there's a, an identifiable problem there isn't always an identifiable solution and you know the solutions that are posed might um okay solve solve the immediate problem in front of you but create so many other issues in in the system as a whole that they that they don't really accomplish what they're setting out to accomplish and this is just a situation where there's an identifiable problem and there's an identifiable solution, and it saves lives, and it saves money, and it prevents suffering, and that we aren't at a place as a state to embrace that and to capitalize on that is, we we have a long way to go.
1: Yeah, and that's, again, I think the the duality of this topic, where there's a lot of sadness and, and darkness. And I think, um, you know, like you said, you've had friends die of overdoses and, and and so have I. And I think a lot of people listening to this will also have that experience. And And I feel like there's, um, there's that dark, sad side of this and the frustrations with the political discourse about it. And then there's also this interesting bright spot where I feel like so much of our politics today is, is just, like, kind of vacuumed up by culture and cultural expression where people can, like, kind of just engage with cultural tropes or film or music. Like, 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 there's just this way that, like, our, our political engagement has been just replaced by our consumption of culture where it's, like, okay to be radical culturally, but politically, you know, no one does anything. And I think these harm reduction programs are actually a really, uh, interesting look at community organizing and mutual aid and people really engaging in, in politics. And I think that's what this really is. It's people in their communities seeing, like you said, like this problem and that it has a solution and they're, in some cases doing civil disobedience to implement that solution or they're fighting back uh, the police to implement that solution. And so that, that to me is, is I think maybe the, the the moral of the story here, which is like, even in the face of all this death and darkness, there is, there are people in the community who, um, who really care and who are sticking their necks out and taking serious risks to, to do work that prevents suffering and saves lives. And, and I think telling that story um, is, you know, the we've all done it and, and and we'll keep doing it, but I think focusing on that side of the story is maybe a way to, to fight back our own despair. And, and that I think, I, I talked to uh, a, a sort of public health, slash harm reduction attorney. Uh, his name is Corey Davis. And they sort of are sort of like almost like a law firm, but for like local harm reduction programs, basically. And and they're getting requests from like Nebraska and Michigan, like these um, places where that are more rural, more conservative, where harm reduction hasn't really existed. And they're getting requests from people in health departments in these places to be like, Hey, like I think our town needs a syringe program. Like how do we do it? And can we do it? And Corey and kind of the law firm steps in and is like, yeah, like, you know, here's the laws, like here's your liability, like here's what you can do. And, and I, and I feel like, um, so like there is this, and I want to just keep reiterating, like there is a bright spot here where harm reduction does seem to be expanding and i guess it's it's just not going to happen without a fight is maybe where 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 we're stuck right
0: no de- definitely yeah and i think i think too i i spoke to somebody at a at one of the harm reduction programs in the state um probably a month ago now is before the legislative session started and um you know we had we had spoken about about the possibility that a bill would be introduced that would jeopardize programs, um, currently operating around the state. And, and something that the person said at the time is like, look, like, regardless of what legislation comes out of this, people are still going to have needs and they're still going to be people working to help people meet those needs. <laughs> and, you know, whether it happens in a way that, um, is, you know, has full community support and, um, and, and sort of, backing uh of of local leaders behind it or if it happens quietly um like that work is still going to be necessary and it's still going to be happening um and i think you know the decision that our legislators make is just going to dictate in what form that work happens in
1: yeah well maybe um you know that's a good place to wrap up is like, even if these bills pass and these programs are hemmed in and people will still need these programs and one way or another, hell or high water that these people, uh, that someone will try to serve this community one way or another.
0: And I think too, just that it's okay. It's okay to not understand and it's okay to have concerns or be worried, but it's, it's not okay to, to not sort of seek answers and to to not, uh, try, um, try to understand and to find middle ground and to, you know, I think we all just on, on all ends of this have a responsibility to, to be open to conversation, whether it's conversation that we're comfortable with or not, um, anytime the opportunity presents itself.
1: Yeah. And like, I think that's, part of what living in a democracy means is like even if certain things make you personally uncomfortable that doesn't mean your like personal whims get to dictate and lord over other people you know it's like with like abortion like you know some people just don't like abortion and that's fine but that doesn't mean their like personal preferences get to dictate other people's lives that's just like not the kind of that's not like a Society I want to live in, you know, yeah. And anything else about this you you, you want to say? Like you, you've told us a bunch of great anecdotes and a, and really I think captured the the kind of crux of the political story here. Um, and then you know, if not, we can also just end on um, you know where people can find your work and I'll post all your links and Twitter and all that Um,
0: yeah that sounds that sounds awesome I I, you know we're gonna continue to report on this and Um, all of our work is at mountainstatespotlight.org. Um, and I will say we are, we're a nonprofit newsroom and we make all of our content, um, free, not just to read, but also to republish. So, um, if any of our work, uh, is of interest to any of your listeners, then they can not only read it, but if they run, um, outlets of, of their own, they're more than welcome to republish. And we have a guide on our website of, of how they can do that.
1: Yeah, that's great. I'm I'm so glad that Mountain state spotlight exists and that you're there doing this work. Um, I think it's incredibly valuable. And, uh, in this kind of world, we always hear like local news is struggling that local news is kind of just like a skeleton of what it once was. And yeah, that like th- your outlet and, and, and this work exists in. In West Virginia is just, uh, yeah, really kind of warms my heart. So thank you so much for, for the work you do and for coming on the show to talk about it.
0: <laughs> Back at you. Thank you so much for having me on.
1: Hey, thanks for listening to Narcotica, an independent production by Christopher Moraff, Zachary Siegel, and Troy Farah, and I'm your co-producer Garrett Farah. Our theme music is by Glassboy. Additional music is by Lasers. And Jenny Shea is the voice of Narcotica. Narcotica is an ad-free program, and we would like to keep it that way. But that would not be possible without our patrons over on Patreon. If you like the show and you'd like to help us keep the lights on around here, consider donating to us. But if you can't do that, that's understandable. You can still help us by getting the word out. We're on all major platforms, and if you'd like, you can follow us on social media like Facebook and Twitter. Hope you guys enjoyed the episode, and have a very nice night.